0: Good morning, Keystone. We are starting this morning a new series where we're going to be looking at the book of 1 John. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning and want to open up to 1 John, uh, we're going to be just in the first four verses this morning, mainly focusing on verse 4. But I have a couple of questions for you this morning before we start out. Uh, The first one is this. You don't need to answer it out loud, but you can just think in your head. What was something that made you happy this past week? Maybe it was a last-minute game-winning shot for the 76ers by Joel Embiid. Uh, Maybe it was filing your taxes, knowing that you're going to get a nice return. Uh, Maybe it was getting a prime parking spot at the grocery store. Uh, Or maybe it was enjoying leftover peanut butter eggs that were still there from Easter on Monday morning. There's probably lots of different things this week that might have made you happy. But then here's the second question. What's something that made you unhappy this past week? Maybe it was waking up tired because you stayed up too late watching a basketball game. Maybe it was filing your taxes and knowing that you have to pay in a significant amount. Uh, Maybe it was getting a lousy parking spot at the grocery store as it's raining. Or maybe it was feeling the letdown after a holiday on Monday morning. And and those are just the more surface level forms that we could talk about. I, I have no doubt that everyone here this morning experienced both happiness and unhappiness this past week, and likely each day this past week. As I thought about those questions, as I reflected on them, what what made me happy? What made me unhappy? uh, My mind went to a first experience that I had this past week. I was summoned for jury duty. And so, that's right, some of you have been summoned for jury duty before. And so from eight o'clock a.m. till 12 o'clock on Monday morning, I was up and down between happiness and unhappiness. Uh, it started with unhappiness that I even had to go at all because I had my week planned out and I thought, why would they interrupt my week and expect me to go serve on a jury? And so I'm unhappy having to even go. That shifted to happiness when we got there and they said, well, none of the cases might even go to trial this morning and so you might all be free to go. Fantastic, right? That shifted to unhappiness as soon as they started forming their first panel to go for a jury, and I was one of the lower numbers, 39. Which then shifted to happiness when they started at number 100 and went up from there. Which then shifted to unhappiness when I realized they're forming two more panels and everyone's gonna have to go. Which eventually then shifted to happiness again when the judge for the case that I might be selected on said, if you get selected for this, uh, it's gonna be over by the end of today today. By the end of the day, you'll be able to go home. Great, now I want to be selected. Which shifted to unhappiness when I wasn't selected and had to go back down and wait for possibly another jury. Which shifted to happiness when then I finally got to leave and they said, you don't have to come back, you're good to go. I mean, just in a matter of four hours, up and down, up and down, up and down. And I had to reflect on that and think, how often is that the case for our happiness in this life. Rising and falling, depending on the circumstances in front of us or how life is going, whether things are going how we want them to or not. And I thought, is, is that what we have to resign ourselves to? Like a happiness that comes and goes, primarily based on whatever circumstances we are facing right in front of us. And the Bible would tell us, no. That we don't have to be prisoners to the moment. That there is a joy and happiness that's available independent of our circumstances. I think, isn't that what we all long for in some sense? Isn't that all what we long for? Like a, a joy and a happiness that is secure that is strong, that is lasting, that isn't easily taken away, that, that is just as strong when everything seems to be going against us as it is when everything is going for us. This is a joy that Jesus wanted for his disciples when he said in John fifteen eleven, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's a joy Jesus told his disciples to pray for in John 16, 24. When he said, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It's a joy that Jesus prayed for his disciples the night before he was crucified. When he's speaking to the Father and says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in Themselves, And then 50 years after those events, of which John was a firsthand witness to, he writes a letter to fellow Christians with this stated purpose. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete or full. It's the same word there. And just a, a note that R in there, we are writing these things so R can just as quickly be translated your. Maybe your translation actually has it as your. And even if it is translated R, everyone agrees it's an inclusive R that's meant to be uh, mine and yours. So John's saying, I'm, I'm writing for my joy and yours. Whoever is reading this, including us today. It would seem that our joy is a really important thing to God. Not just because of these verses, but because it shows up throughout the Bible all over the place. In fact, Randy Alcorn, and I'll just give a shout-out recommendation to his book, Happiness, which is a great book, says words for joy, happiness, and the like show up 1,700 times throughout the Bible. It would seem that our joy is a really important thing to God. That God wants us to live a joy-filled life. God wants us to live a joy-filled life. So as we start this series this morning, where we're going to be looking at joy through the lens of 1 John, we're going to read the first four verses, one through four, but focus in mainly on verse four this morning. And then we'll look at the other three next week. And we're going to ask four questions together. First of all, What is joy? Second of all, why does joy matter? Is can we have fullness of joy? And then lastly, how do we grow in that joy? How do we grow in fullness of joy? So let me pray for us and then we'll read 1 John 1 through 4. God, we look to you this morning to satisfy us to strengthen us, to impart joy into our hearts, a joy that is not elusive, quick to disappear, quick to change based on the changing circumstances we face, but a joy that might be constant, steady, strong, and impact every area of our lives. And we know for that to happen, we need your spirit to speak and move among us. And so I pray to that end this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. So first of all, we have to ask, John's writing this letter in part so our joy may be complete. What is joy? Maybe that sounds like a simple question to answer, but people fall down all over the place on what actually is joy. In fact, uh, among Christians over the past 100 years especially, there's been a move to separate joy and happiness as if they're two different things. One very well-known author, an evangelical author from the past hundred years, said this, joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it is an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with him. Some pretty strong words. I I think the the motivation behind separating joy and happiness and saying they're two different things, is rooted in a couple things. One, it's rooted in this idea that there's a difference between joy that can be found simply in circumstances, which these people would refer to as happiness, and joy that can be had independent of circumstances, which would then be referred to as joy. And then two, that there's this motivation to differentiate between the joy that is available to someone who is a Christian. And the joy that is available to someone who's not a Christian. Which would be termed happiness in this case. And I think those are important issues when we think about joy. And we're going to address both those things as we look at question three today. But I would say the the motivation or the drive to separate joy and happiness as two different things is unnecessary and confusing. For three reasons. One... Because grammatically speaking, they're talking about the same thing. Most people would be hard-pressed to give you a difference between joy and happiness. Most people would say, well, it's, it's an emotion. And so they're pointing to the same emotion. And so if everyone wants to be happy, which is what we're going to point out in a minute, then it might be really confusing for a lot of people, especially those who are non-Christians, to say, well, God doesn't care about whether you're happy or not. He cares about whether you're joyful or not and just creates confusion. Because so that's one reason. Two is because Christians in history have not spoken like this up until the past 100 years. And so someone like Jonathan Edwards, who writes in the 18th century, talking about John 15, 11, where Jesus is uh, teaching the disciples so that his joy might be in them and be full, comments on the verse and says, The happiness Christ gives to his people is a participation in his own happiness. He doesn't say the joy Christ gives his people, and that's different than happiness. And it's not just him. Authors all across history have not differentiated between these two. But then thirdly, and most importantly, I don't believe the Bible makes this differentiation. The Bible doesn't seem to have neat categories for "This is joy and this is happiness," but uses all sorts of different words to get at the reality of joy, happiness, gladness, the emotion of it. There are all sorts of words used for joy and happiness and gladness throughout the Bible, And so we could look even at a passage like Isaiah 52:7, as Isaiah speaks about those who are going to proclaim the gospel, and here's what he says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. See, I would say the the emphasis on separating joy and happiness and saying these are two different things is well intentioned, but ends up being unnecessary and, and maybe even unhelpful, as we'll see as we go along this morning it might be comparable to if you were having a conversation with someone this afternoon and they said to you, the sky is really clear today. And you looked at them and said, no, the sky is really blue today. And they said, well, that's what I mean. It's just two different ways of describing the same reality. And I would say joy, happiness, other words like it, are different words describing the same reality, the same emotion in us. Uh, Randy Alcorn puts it well when he says, instead of don't seek happiness with the idea of seek joy instead, a command impossible to obey anyway, why not seek your primary happiness in Jesus and fully enjoy The derivative of happiness in his countless gifts, including family, friends, food, work, and play. So what is joy? Here's the definition I'm working off of for this series. Joy is a happy satisfaction in God and his gifts. Joy is a happy satisfaction in God and his gifts. And I'll use those words joy and happiness interchangeably because I think that's what scripture does as well. So when John writes, we are writing these things so that our, both your and my, joy may be complete. I don't believe he's saying, your happiness doesn't matter. What matters is your joy. I'd say they're the same thing. Which leads to the second question. Why does joy matter? Why does joy matter? Why spend 20 weeks in 1 John looking at it? through the lens of joy, which is what we're gonna do. Why does joy matter? Because God wants us to be happy. God wants us to be happy. I wonder if you're like me and you hear that statement and instinctively push back against it a little bit and say, yeah, but But like maybe we view that statement almost as if we would view an infomercial with suspicion. Like we hear flex tape can solve all of our problems in our house. And we think, yeah, that would be nice. But do we hear God wants us to be happy and think, yeah, but because we don't have to. Because God really does want us to be happy as we'll see. And we can look at that and say that's true and rejoice that this is our God. This is our God. So, so let's point out three reasons or look at three reasons why this statement, God wants us to be happy, is true. First, because we were designed for happiness. God created Adam and Eve put them in the Garden of Eden, and they were only always fully, completely happy in that garden and in relationship with him. And then sin enters, and it separates humanity from God, and it ends up with a curse being put on this world and all of God's good gifts. But sin doesn't take away this ingrained desire we have for happiness. It simply misdirects it to places that won't ultimately make us happy. So this is part of why Ecclesiastes 3.11 can say, God has put eternity into man's heart. That in some sense he's placed a longing for a full, lasting, complete happiness in every man, woman, and child. There's perhaps no more universal goal for humans than to seek after and try to obtain happiness in this life. Just, just think about this for a moment. What do philosophers, atheists, and Puritans all agree on? That, that sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Philosopher, atheist, and Puritan, what do they all agree on? that we were made to seek happiness. This is why a French philosopher, Denis Diderot, can say there is only one passion, the passion for happiness. It's why uh, the atheist L.K. Washburn, in an article where he's actually arguing against religion, can say everyone wants to be happy and thinks, strives, wishes, and lives to that end. And it's why the English Puritan preacher, Thomas Manton, could say it is as natural for the reasonable creature to desire to be happy as it is for the fire to burn. And that's not just him. If you would look at the Puritans across the board, they talk about how we're created to pursue happiness. The desire for happiness is implanted in humans, ingrained in us. By whom? By God. God himself. That's the first reason to say, it. God wants us to be happy. The second reason is maybe even bigger. God commands us to be happy. When you read scripture all across the pages, there are commands to rejoice, be glad. Philippians 4.4 is probably the most common, where God says through Paul, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice be happy in God. How how often, Paul? Always. Oh, and in case case we didn't get it, let me say it again. Rejoice. Like, God commands us to be happy in him. I, I think this is so important for us to see because if you're like me, we so easily buy into Satan's lies that following Christ and obeying God will make us miserable or it's just a duty we have to bear when that simply isn't true. God is not aiming at our misery nor is he aiming simply at our duty. He's aiming at us being fully happy. He's aiming at our greatest joy. So that's the second reason. Here's the third one. Worship necessitates happiness. This is where maybe as we're sitting here this morning, some want to push back and say, well, as humans, we're created to worship God. That that's our primary purpose. Shouldn't we speak about that rather than speaking about happiness? To which we should realize these aren't two separate things. They're one and the same. Worship can't be separated from happiness. So Psalm 98.4 says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break into joyous song and sing praises. And so do many other passages in the Bible that connect worship and joy together. We worship and praise what makes us happy. This is why I sing the praises of the spicy chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A. Because it makes me happy. Maybe only for a couple moments, but it makes me happy. This is why you might sing the praises of a Chevy truck over a Ford truck, or a Ford truck over a Chevy truck, or a Dodge. I don't know that anyone does that. <laughs> but why do you sing the praises of a truck? Because it makes you happy. Or you sing the praises of a sale at Target. Why? Because it makes you happy. We instinctively praise, sing about, talk about what makes you happy us happy. And the happier we are in something, the more we praise it. And we might say, well, well, wait a second. Isn't there a category in the Bible for worshiping through lament? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The Psalm is, Psalms are full of it and other passages in the Bible. But even in lament, what are we doing? In sorrow and sadness and difficulty, we are calling out to the one who can care for us, and who can fill us with joy. Even in that case, we're worshiping the one who we know can ultimately turn our sorrows into joy, as we talked about last week. So if our main purpose as humans is to worship God, then we could just as easily say our main purpose is to be as happy in God as we possibly can. So why does joy matter? Why would John write in 1 John 4? We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Why would John write, as one commentator says, seeking the highest happiness of his readers? Because God wants us to be happy. So John says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Which then leads to our third question Is fullness of joy possible? Is that possible? Is that a reality that we can even know? Like, is complete joy even possible in this life? And in one sense as Christians, we would answer that question and say, no. In the sense that we know we're destined or designed for a new heavens and new earth, where there will be a happiness and joy beyond anything we experience in this life. But in another sense, we have to ask that, answer that question. Is fullness of joy possible with yes? Because why else would Jesus pray for it, tell us to pray for it? Why else would John write with that as his goal? So what does it mean to have a complete joy or fullness of joy? That, that word complete most often means filled up or full of something. So, so we, we might gain the idea there that it means to be I, that, that I could say, I'm happy, I'm joyful, and I don't need anything else to make me happy. I don't need circumstances to change to make me joyful or happy. But, but the other thing with that word complete is the idea of remaining, not easily stolen away, not taken, that it sticks over time. So circumstances can't simply steal this joy Away. Remember, this, this is where some people want to say there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is in circumstances. Joy is outside of circumstances. But maybe it's better to just say this. God wants us to be happy in him. And full, complete joy that doesn't ride up and down just based on circumstances is only found in God. That's not to say someone who isn't a Christian doesn't experience joy and happiness. So please don't hear me say that this morning. That maybe you're someone even here this morning who you don't believe in God or you're not trusting Christ. And you would say, I've got a lot of joy and happiness right now. And I would say, yeah, you might. And the reason for that is because God has poured out good gifts in your life. And God does that indiscriminately to everyone. This is why Paul can say to those who are not Christians in Lystra in Acts 14, 17, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Like everyone across the board can and will experience Joy and happiness in God's good gifts of food, friend, vacations, work, family, and any other good gift. But happiness in God's gifts alone will always be incomplete. Happiness in God's gifts alone will always be incomplete. Because we were meant for more than just the gifts. We were meant for more than just a happiness that is temporary. God's gifts alone can never bear the full weight of our happiness. This is part of why we question sometimes, if, is fullness of joy even available? Because we've put our happiness in certain things or certain circumstances or certain places and only have experienced how they've let us down because they were never meant to bear the full weight of our desire for happiness. Barnabas Piper, I think, uses a great illustration for this when he says we try to seek af- if we try to seek after complete happiness in things in this world, he says it's like trying to hang stuff up or trying to hang a heavy object up on a command strip. You've probably used command strips in your house And if you have, it's likely that at some point, whatever was hanging on it came crashing down, right? I I know my house can't be the only one where like a picture randomly fell off the wall in the middle of the day because it was hanging on a command strip. But command strips are good for hanging lightweight things, right? They're good for hanging that. But try to hang up a 20 pound shelf with command strips and all of a sudden, we're in trouble. Because it's going to come crashing down. God's gifts are good. And they give us a temporary happiness. But if that's where we seek fullness of joy, we're going to be disappointed over and over and over again. I mean, if we find ourselves chasing after one thing, after another, after another, always thinking that happiness that I'm longing for is just around the corner, we're going to be let down again and again and again. Because it's not found in God's gifts. We were made for the source of happiness. We're made to know the source of happiness. This is where fullness of joy is found. This is where complete happiness is found, in knowing God. Which is why David can write in Psalm 1611 and say this, of God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. See, this is the difference of happiness and joy that is available to a Christian or a non-Christian. For someone who's not a Christian, that happiness and joy will only always be temporary. Even if it lasts this entire life. Because it can be taken away as soon as the gift that the happiness brings is lost or taken away. But for those who are Christians, they would say happiness is not only in God's gifts, it's in the source. And he can never be taken away from us. And so therefore we can have fullness of joy, complete joy, lasting joy in him. I think this is, again, part of why we shouldn't separate happiness and joy. Because we can look at the person who's enjoying God's good gifts and say, you like happiness? So do I. Can I point you to the source? You enjoy the effects? So do I. But can I point you to the source of those effects? There's a a ride at Hershey Park that some of you, if not many of you, have likely been on, called Tidal Force. And at this ride, Tidal Force, there's a bridge that goes over the ride and then down into where the ride is. And if you stand on that bridge as the ride's coming down, the water will come up over the bridge and get you wet as you're staying there. You will experience the effects of the ride. And I never understood why it seemed like some people only stood on the bridge and then never got on Tidal force. Like I wanted to go up to them, look at them and say, you like getting wet on a hot day? Uh, so do I. If you just keep walking, you can get on Tidal force and it's even better than just standing on this bridge. You like the effects? You're going to like the actual thing even better. I mean, that's what we're able to say as Christians to everyone who's seeking after happiness. You like God's gifts? You like the happiness they bring? Can I show you the source? Can I introduce you to the one who's given me? Because he's even better than all those things. This is why God designed happiness to point to him. Just as the water that splashes up out of tidal force and the happy screams of people riding it point others to the ride, so God designed every bit of happiness to point to him. This is why if you're in Christ and you're a follower of Christ, you can enjoy God's good gifts and every time say, God, thank you you're so good that you would give me this thing to enjoy. I mean, what an incredible God you must be that you would give me this. And if this is just the fringe, the outskirts of your goodness, how much better must you be? How much better must you be? And if you're not a follower of Christ, or what we might say to someone who isn't a follower of Christ, every time you enjoy happiness in God's gifts, It's God whispering, saying, repent, trust me, follow Christ. You you, you like the gifts that I've given you? They're making you happy? That's great, but for so long you've spurned me, and you've pushed me away. And my kindness is meant to lead to repentance. So you stop pushing me away. You like the gifts? I'm even better. Turn to me And trust me, fullness of joy is available even now in God. A joy that doesn't ride up and down with circumstances. That doesn't mean, though, I would say, that we'll always feel the same measure of happiness or joy. It simply means there is a joy outside of our circumstances available in knowing God that we can know and grow in. Which leads to the final question we have. How can we grow in fullness of joy? How can we grow in fullness of joy? And this is where we're going to zoom out and see First John as a whole for a minute. We're meant to pursue happiness in God. And I think John, in laying out certain things that he comes back to over and over and over again, would give us what I'm going to call pathways to happiness in God. Because there are three things that we'll see showing up over and over and over and over again in 1 John. And it's right belief, right obedience, and right love. Doctrine, obedience, and love. That John would lay out these as the pathways to happiness for us. And so we should recognize that the pathways to happiness are surprising. Those would probably not be the pathways we would naturally think, this is what's going to make me happy. But think about that first one. Pathway number one, knowledge of God, especially in Christ, because Jesus is the one who most fully reveals God. That as we pursue growing in our knowledge of God, not just head knowledge, but personal, heart, life-transforming knowledge, that then we also grow in joy. This is why John, in verses 1 through 3, like we read, can emphasize, we saw God, we touched him, we heard him, and he's even better than you can imagine. It's why one person writes this about not just 1 John, but 1 through 3 John. Robert Yarborough says, if 1 through 3 John leave the disciple who studies them with any single lasting impression, It is the grandeur and centrality of God. Uh, This line, I think, is great. These letters are not simply theological, as one might say, ale is alcoholic. They are rather theology distillate, comparable to the highest proof-grain alcohol that is highly flammable and intoxicating even in small amounts. I read that and I think, I want to read 1 John. That's how John talks about God. And to read 1 John is intoxicating even in small amounts. To know him, to really know him. Man, I want to know him. I want to read about him. And that's exactly what we'll do in 1 John as we look through it. Second pathway, obedience to God's commands. Obedience to what he commands us in scripture. Obedience to his leading in our life. Not because we're attempting to gain his favor or approval or our salvation. No, that's only in Christ. But because he's a God who's good and is always for our happiness, and if that's the case, why wouldn't we want to do what his commands are, what he leads us to do? We we so easily fall for believing God's commands are a burden we have to wear on our shoulders. But they're more like balloons full of helium that are meant to lift up our joy. Which is why we'll hear John say in 1 John 5.3, and his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're meant for our good and for our happiness. And then thirdly, love for God and for his people. If we talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as the love chapter of the Bible, we might refer to 1 John as the love letter of the Bible. It has maybe the most famous statement on love in the Bible in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And John consistently talks about God's love for us, our love for him, and our love for one another. And shows that those three are like magnets that stick together, that aren't easily separated. That if we want to grow in joy, then we seek to grow in love for God, in knowing his love, and in loving one another. And in reality, all three of those pathways are interconnected and not easily separated, as we'll see as we go throughout 1 John. But but John would say to us, you want to pursue joy in God? Know him, obey him, love him, and love his people. But we have to put an important caveat in here. The pathways to joy are not formulas. Like, they're not formulas where it's like, if I do this, if I just read my Bible this morning, I'll be instantly happier. If I just obey what God wants me to do in this moment, I'll be instantly happier. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to turn things into formulas with God. Like, one act of obedience equals one goosebump of joy. And that's not, that's not how God works. That's not how God works. This is, this is why when God, or God talks about happiness and joy as a result of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something the Holy Spirit produces in us and through us. Not that we simply bring about by our own efforts. That doesn't mean that we don't walk in those pathways. It simply means we walk in those pathways... And trust God to bring the joy. We put ourselves on the pathways to joy that God's given us, and then we trust Him to bring the joy when the time is right. I think we, there are other ways we do this all the time in our lives. Well, one example might be this. Let's say that you're a snowboarder who is looking to have a day full of joy riding the slopes. I would say if you're a skier, Uh, But if you're a skier, you've never really known true joy. So it would kind of be pointless if I would say that. Yeah, that's right. Let's say you're a snowboarder who's looking for a day full of joy. Where do you go? You go to the mountain. You go to Blue Mountain. Because you know that's where the slopes are. That's where joy is found. But how well that day goes, how happy you are as you're snowboarding or skiing, is in some ways outside of your control. It depends on the weather. Right, And so if you show up and it's really cold and the slopes get icy, or it's really warm and the slopes get slushy, then it's not going to be the best day. Or worst of all, if it rained overnight or it rains during the day. Or best of all, if it snowed six inches overnight. You go to where joy can be found, the mountain, but you know that in some sense, joy depends on something outside of yourself. The same could be true of these pathways to joy, of growing in our happiness in God. We go to where joy can be found, knowing God, obeying God, loving him and his people. And then we trust him to bring the joy in the right time. God really does want us to live a joy-filled life. Like it's part of why he had John write this letter. And full joy really is available in him. And we can pursue it every single day. And here's one final thing with that. Joy in God is meant to overflow. What happens when something gets full? What happens next? It overflows. Right? We had an incident in our house a couple weeks ago where one of our drains was plugged and a faucet got left on And so what happened in that instance, the water filled up the sink and quickly began to spill out over the counter onto the floor. And while we didn't realize it immediately, it wasn't long before we heard something and realized we've got water overflowing on the floor in our bathroom. Because when something overflows, you can't ignore it for long. Joy in God is meant to overflow into every single part of our life. And it's meant to overflow then into how we relate to other people. And as it does, those who don't know Christ might just be drawn to wonder about our joy. Joy can actually be a great apologetic for our faith. This is why A.W. Tozer could say, The people of God ought to be the happiest people in the whole wide world. That sounds great. The people of God ought to be the happiest people there are. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. I mean, just stop and think. What if in a time that is so often dominated by fear and anxiety and uncertainty and anger and division, When people looked at Christians and the church, what they saw most clearly instead was joy. Wouldn't that speak loudly to a world around us? That when they look in and say, Christians are some of the happiest people in the world. They've got a joy that doesn't ride up and down based on circumstances. They've got something I don't have. And I want it. And then we might have the opportunity to say, can we introduce you to the source of our joy? He's even better than any of the gifts that he gives. See, our joy matters not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the world as well. And so we should resolve to pursue joy in happiness, which is why we're doing this series in 1 John. Let's pray. God, I think about what David says in Psalm 103. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, God, that's what we want to do day after day after day. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And David says, don't forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and satisfies you with good. God, I pray that we would be people marked by the joy of the Lord that the joy that is found in you would be our strength and it would be what people see in us as they interact with us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.